0: you're listening to The Direct Care Derm. My name is Steven. I'm a board-certified dermatologist and direct care dermatology practice owner. I'm also your host. The Direct Care Derm is a podcast that gives you a blueprint for creating a direct care practice of your own with the help of my story as I'm living it and the stories of many friends and colleagues, both within dermatology and other fields of medicine and in relevant non-medical fields, such as marketing and finance. Each week, my friends and I will be bringing you tips, resources, education, entertaining stories, industry insights, and so much more. Consider this your one-stop shop for taking yourself from direct care curiosity to direct care mastery. At this point, you may find yourself asking, what is direct care? Direct care is the restoration of the therapeutic physician-patient relationship and the trust between patient and physician that has eroded so terribly over the last several decades. Direct care is addition by subtraction. It's the opposite of indirect care, the kind of care that's so frustrating to both patients and doctors. If you or a doctor in your life has ever talked about being burned out in medicine, this is one of the biggest reasons why. Fortunately, there's something we can do about it. By removing as many barriers as possible that stand between physicians like myself and the people who need us, Direct care practices seek to provide transparent, affordable, accessible, and superior care that meets and ideally even surpasses the expectations of the 21st century healthcare consumer. This is now episode six of the Direct Care Derm podcast. One thing I want to focus on in terms of my continual improvement objectives for this show is reflecting a bit at the top of the episodes in which I interview guests to give you a taste of what's to come. My next guest Dr. Dabal Desai, popped into my life at an interesting time. Perhaps something inside him, and you'll find out what I mean once you hear from him, moved him to reach out to me at that time. We are both part of a men's group online that usually resembles the, quote, locker room talk that former President Donald Trump is so fond of. Author and renowned Caitlin Moran refers to this as banter in her book, What About Men?, Men are really good at banter. I was new to the group, but was quite vocal from the beginning. While my intentions were pure and good, this rubbed some long-timers the wrong way. Rather than shutting up, I foolishly and arrogantly dug in. Dr. Desai reached out to me privately on January twenty sixth, 2023, which is almost exactly one year ago from the time this episode is being released. He said, Hi, Stephen just sharing an individual message off the thread about your post. I would be interested in something like this. I like the idea of smaller groups to create conversation, safe space, and talk about real issues. I think many of us struggle as physicians, dads, husbands, and doing it all. Mental health is a passion of mine, and I'm sharing my journey in an upcoming book. In any case, I'm more of a lurker in the group, but would be down for something like this. Thanks for posting. The thread he refers to is a post I made to gauge interest in having an in-person gathering of male doctors to have fun, but also discuss, work through, and collaborate on some serious issues. I still think this will happen one day. People don't talk much about safe spaces for men. And I get it. But the fewer safe spaces men have to be vulnerable and expose themselves to differing viewpoints, the more tragedies we will continue to bear witness to at the hands of men who are struggling and in great pain. Now, here we are, a year later, in intimate and healing conversation on my fledgling podcast. I'm still part of that group. There are some things about it that I admire and value tremendously. But my active participation in it wasn't helping anyone, including me at that time. That was a difficult time in my life, and I wasn't able to see my blind spots and realize the damage I was doing to myself. I needed help. A mere stranger at the time, Dr. Desai helped pull me out. I'm grateful to him for doing so. Just one other brief note about this episode before we get started. As you may know, this is all really new to me, and when you're doing something like this, there are going to be problems that you need to solve. I had an echo that I couldn't get rid of on my end when we were recording. We just went for it. I did my best to ignore the echo, and we had a great conversation. However, the echo ended up being attached to Dr. Desai's track. That meant that when I was editing, I had to use just his track with both of our voices in it in order to avoid the echo. That made the timing slightly off and it reduced the quality of my voice at least, but he still sounds great. It also meant that I wasn't able to capture side-by-side video of us for the promotional clips that I used for this episode. In those clips, if you've seen them, it's just Dr. Desai, even when I'm talking. That means we get to see him listening. I think this actually ended up being a blessing in disguise because it's a fantastic example, even though he wasn't deliberately trying to show that, of the art of active listening. You can really see here why and how Dr. Desai is such a wonderful physician, friend, father, and husband. Enjoy the episode.
1: Dr. Stephen Luellis here. Welcome back to the Direct Care Derm and thank you all for being with us. Today I am
2: honored to have with us physician and author, Dr. Dabal Desai. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here with you, and I appreciate your vision. A little bit about myself, I am a physician, that is my career. I am trained in med, peds, internal medicine and pediatrics. I practice in Atlanta, Georgia. I am married to another physician, Yogita. She is a physical medicine and rehab physician, physiatrist, and we have two kids. Kaya's age eight and my little one the little boy, he's three and a half, will be four pretty soon. So mm. we're pretty settled down here. Professionally, I've really enjoyed Being a physician, but I really developed a passion for the human experience in medicine pre-COVID and everything happened with COVID, which I know we'll get into, which led me on a different Mm -hmm. journey.
1: Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that about yourself. And it sounds like we both had pandemic babies.
2: Yeah. Tell me about yours. Are yours born in the same time? My first is four years old. Oh, okay. I
1: know that yours. you had one in February 2020. Is that right? That's right. Mine, My first was October of 19. Okay, okay. And then we have a younger one now. She was born in 2022. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I get it. (laughs) So we'll have a lot in common to talk about, but your perspective is also quite unique as well, and I'd want to get into that. So right off the bat, I'm going to show your book here. You were kind enough to send me a copy of that, and I do appreciate it. I love any physician who has the courage, creativity, and the the drive to write a book and share their story. Yours is called Burning Out on the COVID Frontlines, a doctor's memoir of fatherhood, race, and perseverance in the pandemic. You tell a story from 2021 that for me brought to mind the troubling cognitive dissonance of faithfully taking care of people who were so disrespectful of policies like masking, for instance, and the people who they were so arrogantly expecting to take care of them, regardless of how they treated them. And we have, as physicians, this internal struggle. We know people are hurting, and they're in pain, in distress. Sometimes they're even cognitively impaired. And we We have have to take this this into consideration when we're understanding and perceiving how they are treating us. There's also a line. So tell me a little bit about your experience with that during the pandemic. I'm sure you experienced a little bit of it prior to as well, how you processed that and maybe how you've grown in how you're able to deal with that. And I'm sure the pandemic brought it it to a climax because of the stress that everyone is under.
2: Yeah. First and foremost, historically, and to this day, I'm still always going to be a patient advocate and try to advocate for what the patient needs. Yeah. Our healthcare system is so complex. Things get lost through the cracks. Patients get lost. There's so many issues, right? We don't practice in a perfect system. We don't practice in a vacuum. And the pandemic really exacerbated all that. And I am always a compassionate person. That's why I'm doing this. I don't like being transactional. I don't like not having relationships with people. I really value that, right? I value going away from the idea of burning out and treating patients like objects and actually treating them like human beings. And that's our goal throughout the pandemic, pre-pandemic and beyond. To that, I will say there were various times during the surges that we experienced that there was very challenging times for me and likely many others around the country to really not experience what's called compassion fatigue, where you're like, we're putting ourselves out there to try to fix things, to try to treat these patients, and You know, we were initially deemed all healthcare heroes, and the whole country was rooting for us, those on the front line that rapidly dissipated. And then we had the surges when patients were just not buying into it, and they wanted certain things done, certain things not done, and it was really unfair. It just felt very unfair that myself, colleagues locally and around the country were facing this sort of barriers, these sort of personalities, barriers, challenges to treat people that really did not want to follow the guidelines to help eradicate and minimize the burden from COVID. Was I ever rude to somebody because of it? No. Was I a little bit more transactional instead of compassionate? Mm. Probably, definitely, definitely, definitely. Mm. I think that's important to always remember and I think we've learned a lot from that.
1: I feel that in myself, even (laughs) the transactional nature that you almost forced to transition to in order not to be r- frankly rude uh, when you're almost feeling attacked or disrespected. So I applaud you, you for keeping a professional air even in the face of such a challenge. And thank you for being on the front lines. Uh, I'm a dermatologist. I was taking the quickly put together courses about what the heck to do in the ICU when we decide to put you in there. Uh, and I was terrified. <laughs> I remember laying on my bedroom floor watching these videos about peep and it was like when was the last time a dermatologist thought about PEEP? i never had to go in and i'm very grateful for that but i won't ever be able to know what it was like for you and your colleagues and the many that have unfortunately been lost but i want to thank you for well, thank that you. Because- no, thank you for saying
2: that it was a privilege yeah. it truly is a privilege to mm-hmm. serve but that privilege didn't come without a cost absolutely
1: and every piece of service that it has that degree of magnitude certainly comes with a cost so moving on i want to go from a passage on page 25 of your book and i'm just going to read that this was in a chapter called the twin pandemics you write soon we began to notice a racial divide among patients admitted with covid 19. i would glance at our patient list and talked to colleagues. And we saw that the majority of those hospitalized with COVID-19 during the summer of 2020 were Latinx or African-American. At first, the numbers indicating racial disparity among COVID patients appeared to be coincidental, but this trend was sustaining. Without question, COVID-19 was ravaging these minority communities faster, with many getting so sick as to require hospitalization. It was scary. Something had to change. Could you tell me about your experience with that and that of your colleagues? And if you were able to come up with anything that you felt
2: made a change. I know you did some outreach to those
1: specific communities. Tell
2: me a little bit about- It was weirdest even, it was happening in slow motion yet very fast at the same time in that summer Mm -hmm. surge. And we were definitely seeing those patients that had to work, that had to be out factory yeah. workers there was a huge outbreak in multiple similar settings and there was a lack of health literacy there was a lack of there was a lack of ability to leave work they needed it for socioeconomic reasons and it was really palpable and you could see it and it just raised my eyebrows again saying we have to keep advocating for those that do not know how to advocate for themselves in the system yeah. for those with limited English proficiency we did do a lot of outreach my colleagues and I am also a Spanish speaker I can immediately see trust in a a patient who is a Spanish speaker only, and I start speaking Spanish. Of course, it was a very depersonalized approach. All they could see is my eyes and the garb of all the COVID PPE we had to wear, but there was extra trust there. And I got trust personally and said, okay, we're gonna have to do this. We're gonna treat these patients, advise them, but we need to do bigger outreach to the community. So we partnered with some local Latin American associations, Spanish cable outlets, news outlets, to really talk about it. And I'd like to say that made a difference. Did that solve everything? Of course not, of course not. But it was a wake-up call to me, and I knew this all along, but it was more of in reality saying, okay, wait a minute. There is so much need for advocacy in what we do. Again, a calling is that what are we really doing? We're seeing patients, we're treating patients, and this is just not my field. This is your field, all of our yeah. fields. Instead of just treating and moving on, there's a way that we really need to make sure when we're seeing so many patients, when we're doing what we're doing, that patients understand what their disease is, as much as we can make them and help them, and know what to do when they're done with us. Whether they're leaving the hospital, leaving the clinic, they don't understand what's going on, how to take their meds, why to take the meds, where to get the vaccine, all of those things. It's a big issue. Later in the surges, when we did have the vaccine, I remember for some of the patients who had limited proficiency in English, I would tell them where to log on their phone. And we would sign up for the vaccine together saying, this is where you're going to go. This is where you're going to do it. Couldn't do that for everybody. But certainly as much as we could, we did that. I did that. And I encourage my colleagues to too. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. And I'm the worst, the best person ever and the most altruistic. But there was a lot of epiphanies for me personally, things I knew before, but things that really were much more precedent and real eye opening to me saying how divided we are not only in healthcare, but in the communities. Those are such good examples. I love that you as a patient advocate,
1: you said, and that is part of our job as physicians. It's not relegated to someone else in the patient advocacy department or whatever it might be. You knew that those little gestures, especially in populations that because of things like systemic racism would naturally have a smaller degree of trust or a degree of distrust towards the medical system, you could make a small gesture like speaking Spanish, which I applaud you for that. And you see that switch in them and going on the phone and let's just do this right now. You didn't feel that you were above that because you were the doctor
2: who was in charge. So I I love just looking at those little ways to stand out above and beyond. And all of us can do uh, little things like that, right? We just yeah, have to find what we can do. And it's not saying we go and change everything, but one thing at a time, one small thing at a time can make a huge difference for the huge. recipient. Absolutely. It's a paradox in healthcare, just like voting.
1: We think, what does my vote matter, right? But That's a
2: very good comparison. <laughs> and
1: uh, Ta- Dr. Todd Otten, who you may know, wrote a book called Ripple of Change. And that is the whole thing. If we are all throwing these tiny pebbles into a pond, it's going to be like throwing a cruise ship into the ocean. It's going to make a difference. And that is what we all have to believe, even though the individual things might not have an effect beyond that one patient and their family. But that's still so important that they are affected, that patient and that family.
0: I love that. I really do. Thank you.
1: The murder of George Floyd. This happened during the pandemic. I lived in downtown Minneapolis Mm. during that time while that happened and you reflected on that in the book and thought about systemic racism and how you maybe weren't as aware of it growing up and even in your adult years and these series of events brought it to light for you. You mentioned that the, I forget it was a, oh, it was a doctor, your
2: partner. Dr. Varakoba or Warikoba, is that right? Dr. Which, Dr. Ahmed, my no, Muslim colleague. No, it was a woman. Wariboko, Dr. Her, Boko, my residency Sorry, colleague. Yeah, Dr. You. Jenny, Dr. Wariboko. Yeah. People would just, on the wards, would
1: just naturally call her Jenny, Beautiful. but you were Dr. Desai. It was terrible. In my that eyes, like, it happened
2: in front of my eyes. It's yeah. wild to And think you feel that.
1: helpless. You feel helpless. These <laughs> aspects of systemic racism also bring up the idea of allyship what can we do, those of us who aren't as afflicted by it? And we'll get into your story of, of this externality of a disease that you have that perhaps has in some way actually given you more privilege than you might've had otherwise in our
2: society. So the, I'd love to explore that, but tell me how you have grown and become an ally. There's countless stories, and the ones I talk about with Dr. Wariboko, and Dr. Ahmed, all being minority physicians and experiencing whether a nurse or another healthcare worker calls them by their first name instead of doctor. Our patient disrespects them because they wear a hijab associated with their Muslim mm-hmm. faith. And those are real things that have happened, not 40 years ago, this is in the last five years, this is in the last 10 years, and I guarantee it's still happening today. And in the past, we have made accommodations for that in healthcare. we said, that's just the patient, we just gotta take care of them, mm-hmm. let's keep moving on. And that's just not acceptable, right? There has to be a zero tolerance policy. And the institution I work for it, was a process to get that changed. This is an area in healthcare that really needs a lot of work It's the DEI diversity, equity, inclusion areas, and also for patients, for healthcare workers that making sure everybody gets the respect that they have earned and deserve in terms of caring for patients. And we cannot tolerate any discrimination based on race, gender, sex, anything. It's just not, it's not mm-hmm. appropriate. And that change hasn't come overnight. It is a continuous process. It is a process for change, but I have learned that challenging the system each time it happens is what we have to do we have to use our voices yes I'm a leader and I feel empowered to do that for my colleagues but I feel just as empowered to do that for somebody else because we do all have implicit biases and we may not realize when we're doing it so I think myself included needs to recognize when that's happening and take a step back and be like okay what's really going on here and it's a lifelong journey to change ourselves but I think being aware and I learned that, especially during George Floyd, seeing the racial tensions that were building, the kneeling ceremony on a Friday afternoon that was happening across the country. I know there is a sense of discomfort for a lot of people. There some were saying, what if I don't kneel and everybody else is kneeling and I'm not kneeling because I just don't want to kneel, but I still respect the cause. Am I going to be looked at differently? There was so much going on when we did all this. And I felt tension from patients. I did, from minority mm. patients that I walk in a room in a hospital room with CNNs on with all talking about it and where you live, Stephen, during the time. So I think what a tragedy the murder of George Floyd was, but racism's always been there, but it climaxed where us in 2020 with such a, you know, as a twin pandemic. And I certainly experienced it.
1: It's remarkable how many people... Came to that realization and it, it took so long for those aspects of a society that other people it's part of their life every single day. It's the fabric of their life. They cannot step away from it. But for some people, me, for example, I can step into it, but it's not that I can never step out of it. And that is not something I can change, but is something I can recognize and throw pebbles just like you are recognizing it in yourself and try your best to be an ally and zero tolerance like you said say something if you see something say something you don't just let it slide because they're they happen to be a patient in the hospital then these things can be done respectfully rather than trying to get in a fistfight and shouting with someone i want to talk about your experience with vitiligo if you're willing to go I would, into that that was a part to, of the book and I would
2: be happy to and you being a you being a dermatologist I think it's <sighs> yes, even more powerful to talk about honestly Yeah please
1: I'll prompt it with something that I read on page 84 This is a chapter called skin color Living with vitiligo is not easy to talk about yet I'm sharing this important part of my life as I realized during the events of 2020 how it has affected me and opened my eyes to the persistent issue of race to be clear, I'm in no way embarrassed or ashamed by my skin color. It is a result of a disease process that affects a part of my body that people may see when they look at me. I never wanted to make it a bigger deal than it was, and it was an ingrained in me by my family to not obsess about it. Vitiligo is an autoimmune disorder which attacks the melanocytes, the cells that produce melanin or pigment in my body. <laughs> So over time, as the melanin-producing cells got destroyed, my skin developed white patches at varying stages. Today, my skin is essentially more than 90% depigmented. As a dermatologist, particularly a white dermatologist, and unfortunately, the majority of dermatologists remain white, we don't see this disease for the severe stigma and social difficulties that it can cause, even if it's mild. An African-American with mild vitiligo with just a few spots here and there experiences something way different than if I had a couple spot spots of vitiligo on my face or my hands. I try to always keep that in mind, but it's still, again, it's something I can step into, but I don't have to live with. Tell me about how vitiligo has affected you and the <laughs> unexpected externality of what you mentioned as white passing, which I found fascinating.
2: Yeah. First, I want to say I have not heard that passage be read out loud by anyone but me when I recorded my audiobook. And it makes me really emotional, honestly. Mm. It brings back all the feelings. Not in a it's bad quality. way. Not in a bad way, but just brings it mm. all out. It's been a lifelong journey. And I was raised by parents and an older brother who's now a dermatologist, too, that cool. really protected and shielded me from any social risks or stigma. They were very protective over me. That's what parents and siblings do. And I was always surrounded in middle high school when that was spreading a little bit more by people that never asked questions, never asked anything about it. They never said anything. It was never a thing. In my college years, it really exploded. And I could see my early 20s, mid 20s, it was really exploding. And it was rough. I, of course, felt self-esteem issues. I, of course, felt self-conscious. But I was once again, sur- I intentionally or unintentionally, it was surrounded by people who loved me as a friend, accepted me. And it really wasn't a thing. I never really got into it. I never really had to explain what's well, been a LIGO, it's a non-immune condition and blah, blah, blah. And then in medical school, it became an issue <laughs> because it was more prevalent. It was more, it was all over my body. And I talk about these examples in the book, but at one point, as a third-year medical student, when you're the bottom of the bottom, an attending pulled me in the center of the hallway and be like, Oh, what's on your neck? Dr. So and so, come look at this. I think this is vitiligo. That is the worst thing that could have happened. And that was such an awful moment. And who does that? Who does that? Would yeah. that be tolerated today? I hope not. But I living. Hope not yeah, living like that was tough. I was self conscious about it, but I developed a tough shell. And fast forward, I have a loving partner who accepts me. And my daughter, who's eight, already talks about it because we haven't hidden things from her. And she said, I'll just share, she's writing some story, fiction story, and the character has vitiligo. And I said, sweetie, you don't have to write about vitiligo. You don't have to. It doesn't hurt my feel. Like, I'm okay. She said, I know, but I just want to, because I want people to know. And it's really sweet. That's just, that's just a beautiful way that this next generation I hope will be raised and It's not a big deal. And I asked her, does anybody at school ever ask you about it? And she's, only one person has, and they asked, why is your daddy's skin so white compared to yours and your mom's? I was like, what'd you say? And she said, my dad has vitiligo and that's when your skin turns white. And that was the end of it. what they say? They said nothing. They said, okay, and she moved on. But in my generation growing up, that could yeah. never happen, that dialogue. <laughs> that would never happen. In any case, from a physician standpoint, that summer of 2020 with George Floyd going on, it was an epiphany to me that what does a black physician feel when they go into a room and immediately they're judged on their skin color? And I recognize that in my own way. I am not an African American. I'm not a black person going into a room. I'm not a physician in that. I cannot experience that fully. However, oftentimes, once to twice a week, I get people look at my card and say, Desai, that sounds Indian. Why, aren't, why don't you look Indian? And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and I never bring Vitiligo up as a thing because I don't want it to be a distraction to patient care, but it made me realize, wow. They're looking at me, then they look at my name, and they're assuming I should look a certain way, maybe sound a certain way, maybe know certain things. There's a lot of potential bias there, and it, it really was it really was eye-opening to me. That sort of shaped me, and then there's the whole concept of, okay, I trained in Ohio, not always the most diverse place, and I'm really valued the where I trained and the institutions and the people I was with, but when I look at my example of Jenny Wariboko, my colleague, at one point I actually remember her saying... And we were talking about race and how it's felt very divided. And I said, Jenny, I'm Indian. So why am I not feeling what you're feeling? And she's like, oh, well, you just blend in. You don't get it. You just don't get it. You blend in. And that really didn't make sense to me. And she wasn't maliciously saying your skin is so-and-so. You're just blending. You just blend in here. But I think maybe there was some, what we call white passing, that I had some sort of advantage because maybe I looked, what a Caucasian person is at the certain privilege. And I don't want to get into that because I don't like to buy into that theory, but there is, that really is out there, right? There is a certain degree yeah. of white privilege out there. And maybe I got that white passing a little bit indirectly because of the vitiligo and did, I question, I leave it open-ended. Did that help me at all? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know, but mm-hmm. there's a lot to my journey with vitiligo. And I will say now in my forties, I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore. I'm not really self-conscious. The only problem with vitiligo, which I wish we could fix, and maybe you and your magical derm worlds and my brother, the sun toxicity with it. It's awful. It's awful. So summers are tough, and I want to be outside playing, but the sun is so toxic to my skin. It burns within seconds, it feels like. And my wife's really understanding, and sometimes I get a little pouty. but I don't want to wear sunscreen just for going out for 10 minutes. Put it on. It's just the disease process. It is what it is. So... Thank you for letting me share all that. It makes me feel vulnerable, but I feel like it's a story that needs to be shared. And I never thought I would write a book, first of all, and I never thought I'd be talking about vitiligo in my book. So I'm grateful to have that platform. You're
1: welcome. And I'm grateful to have you share your story and that you are willing to be vulnerable. A few things from that. First of all, just examples of two men sitting in front of each other, willing to be vulnerable is a little bit groundbreaking in our current society. I'm grateful for you for that. Likewise. I think we'd have a lot fewer problems if the more masculine among us had opportunities to be vulnerable in areas that they felt safe. And again, ripples, just throwing stones. You and I having this conversation and then putting it out on the internet that's a, That's a small stone and it'll make a ripple. Another thing, your daughter and the school experience. You and I have both been in therapy and perhaps still are in, in therapy. I am we, And I can take that out if you don't want us to share it, but it's in the book. I openly talk about it. Yes. And one thing I've learned, at least as a big part of it, is just being with things that are uncomfortable sitting with an emotion that we're not used to being with or we're scared of for some reason. And you just, you take the potency away from it by naming it, describing it, spending time being with it. And your daughter was able to dispel that at school because she normalized it because it was normalized for her. And she had the courage to say something about it because she wasn't scared of it because uh, that was, due to you and Yogita, how you've been in terms of how you've parented. That is just fascinating because the response of a child when something is that straightforward is, okay, <laughs> they just have questions. They're curious. Right. They, just like adults do, but the prefrontal cortex develops and we stop asking those questions when we think it might make someone else embarrassed or self-conscious. But I loved how she dealt with it. And Thank you. I, I want to ask you... The Sunscreen is great, obviously. It's horrible to have to put it on if it really 10 is. minutes of it. Really is. Do you take any supplements like Heliocare, for example, that can <laughs> boost the pr- protection against uh, photo damage? It doesn't mean
2: you wouldn't have to wear sunscreen, but it could help, especially on vacation. I have not done that. My brother has mentioned that to me, but I need to. Okay. I will look into that. It's worth looking
1: into just because you are so at risk your skin will burn. It'll exacerbate your disease and also increase your ultimate risk of, of skin cancer. Uh, a, a colleague of mine, a residency mate, his name his name is Dr. Teo Soleimani. He <laughs> has his own most surgery practice in California. He started a company called Soul Science and their first product is called Sun Powder. And it has niacinamide in it. And they also... Took the ingredient, the active ingredient in HelioCare, which is a botanical that protects against the dangers from the sun. And you put those both in the same product and you can put in a shake in the morning or something like that. So there is innovation happening. It's not a magic pill that makes you not have to use sunscreen. I was going to ask, this is me playing naive, but do
2: you think in our careers, in our lifespan, there's going to be anything like a PO pill we can take that'll protect us from the UV rays? I've thought about that for years. It doesn't I seem very easy and, to do, huh? No, <laughs> that's why it hasn't been the done. The skin is the largest organ, right? That's what we learned. Yeah. Right? People are working
1: on it and people are I mean, look, is not work.
2: the end of the world. It's just oh, annoying it's sometimes. It's great. It's going to keep you looking
1: young. Yeah,
2: yeah that's maybe, sure. maybe. So. And
1: lastly, speaking of looking young, you mentioned you are not an African-American walking into a room where that's the first thing people see. Yep. I have it way better than you in terms of privilege. I have few things about me that people will judge me about immediately in a potentially negative way before knowing anything about me. You, it, your name is going to be on their paperwork. So they're already making judgments about it. My name is weird, but it's probably still sounds like a white person. I look like I'm 15. Yeah. So that when I come into a room, Boom. I can see it in people's faces. Even though I'm a dermatologist who has been practicing for four years and almost 40 years old, they say, oh, I'm surprised you're out of high school. Oh
2: my gosh. Or something like that. I've heard that. And it's one
1: or two times a week, just like you mentioned. So it's not about saying this is as bad as this. No. It's just getting a glimpse of what it's like to be judged by something that's completely out of your control, that influences the way that someone interacts with you or thinks about you. just empathy, a way of developing
2: Absolutely, and to that point, Robin Roberts, who's a broadcast journalist I'm a fan of, don't compare your despair. I've heard her say that in a speech, and it's, I like that. It's so true, like we have different things, but don't compare it. We're stronger than we are to get through this. Um, I
1: love that. That's the same thing I think of when people say first world problems. Yeah we're all humans and we all have problems and yeah. they're, they're on different levels, yeah. but they are problems and they make up they matter. Yeah. I'm paying attention to the time. We got started a little late. I would love to have you much longer. I wanted to talk about fatherhood. Yeah. Maybe we can have you
2: back someday. That okay. would be great.
1: Okay. But I want to skip to, burnout and mental health please i'm hoping we'll talk about that that. yeah i'm going to read a passage from page 51
2: it really means a lot to me that you read this so diligently and prepared like this by the way thanks for saying that i was experiencing the all too familiar symptoms of burnout that i had
1: not yet come to fully recognize more and more i felt closed off from simple pleasures those moments with my son for instance giving him a bottle I would look at him and he at me and somewhere in my brain, I knew this time was precious, yet I fought taking it for granted. This is what being permanently distracted can do to you. I didn't have time to appreciate the beauty. Life was moving too fast around me and I was beginning to feel cheated. It didn't feel fair. Our games of, give me a nose. He would stick his little face out and literally try to touch his nose to mine, started to feel automatic. That I was interacting at a remove. This distressed me to no end. Our game had always been one of joy. And you started to recognize that. And there's a new book by a doctor who's a YouTuber now. He's a productivity expert. His name is Dr. Ali Abdal, And he wrote a book called Feel Good Productivity. Mm. And he identifies three types of burnout. Mm. Overexertion, Mm -hmm. depletion, Mm -hmm. and misalignment. Mm. I think all of us experience a combination of those. I fully agree. Maybe you could (laughs) reflect on your experience of burnout and your path out of it. Yeah. And now that you're at a point where you're clearly trying to influence your colleagues and be a a hand that's reaching
2: up or down, sorry, to to help them. Exactly. Yeah. I think I had been struggling with the mood issues for a long time mood disorder. We call it depression, Mm -hmm. anxiety, whatever you want to call it, maybe a combination of the two and I'd always fought through it and said, okay, I just got to move forward. And truth be told, I never wanted to be that person to show weakness that I thought I was like, well, I can't, I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to be I'm going to fight through and get through this. That's just what I do. But the pandemic 2020, it was just too much for me. It was too much. The birth of my child, my wife had it harder than me, turning her maternity leave into caring for a preschooler and a newborn. I was thrown back in the trenches I wasn't getting an off switch, not that I deserved one or needed one, but I probably did. Zoom meetings from home on my admin days were full all day. And I had, when my wife had to go back to work, my little one was too little to go anywhere. Um, We chose not to send him to daycare initially. And it was caring for him and doing all that. I got too saturated and I didn't know until it was too late and I really needed to do something about it. And yes, I was burnt out, but it was more of a mental health thing, I think. I still like my job. I'm a person that needs my mind busy. Me sitting at home all day watching Netflix, yeah, that's great for a day. But then I start twiddling my thumbs and I get a little antsy. So my brain staying busy is a good thing, but me finding, and it's still a lifelong journey to find what that right balance is of too much or too little and finding in between. I started medication during the pandemic and I talk about that in the book and going through side effects on that and seeing a therapist and keeping that as a maintenance therapy, so to speak, has been very useful. I am still a work in progress, big work in progress, but I'm far better than I used to be. Seeing Dr. Lorna Breen's story in the news in 2020, there's a New York Times article. Lorna Breen was an ER physician in New York City. She committed suicide right around the summer of 2020. Her family's now started the Lorna Breen Foundation. Um, And when you read her article about her, it's like she's kept saying, I can't fix this. I can't fix this. Everyone's suffering. I'm trying, but I can't. Very high achieving person, hard worker, high work ethic. But mental health got her. She was admitted. She was discharged and committed suicide two weeks afterwards. Just the biggest tragedy and just an amazing person. And I'm grateful that I've decided to give back my author proceeds to this foundation because I believe in it. They are destigmatizing mental health for healthcare workers, those intrusive credentialing questions, licensure questions, Mm. and so much more. So that's one thing I'm really excited about with the potential outcomes from the book. But it comes back down to my passion. I'm obviously a passionate physician, a passionate leader, but I'm also passionate about physicians, especially in their mental health, all healthcare workers, but me being a physician, it's clear so many of us, Stephen, you clearly are trying to take care of yourself, but most of us don't. And we feel like it's a weakness because we're trained to always be right and on top of things and move forward and just be the top of everything. And that comes a time in our life but I think, especially in your and my age group, where it's okay, Mm -hmm. now what? I'm married, I have kids, I'm settled in my career, and then everything gets haywire. So it's a very interesting position. I could talk for hours on that. We can do so another time, but- I would um, love to. Yeah. We need to have you back. Oh, I would love to. I have
1: some closing comments. Uh, We have very similar stories. And it is predictable about roughly when the anxious achiever, as my primary care physician describes this type of person, will start to feel things are going haywire. Yeah, I started on a medication during the the pandemic at SSRI. I'm still on it. It's wonderful. I then started seeing a therapist. Still am. All of those things, highly encouraged to other docs. And you need to find that balance. You found it. part of it in writing this book. I think so. For me, I couldn't just in and out of exam rooms all day long, four days a week, and I had a day off on Friday where I could just go.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's not like
1: I was... Doing creative work and feeling, or I was finishing charts, whatever it was. So, finding those ways where you can achieve balance and rejuvenate. Anne Lamott said something along the lines of everything starts working again when you unplug it for a couple minutes. And it's so simple. That's what we do with it's our computers. So What's simple. Going on? <laughs>
2: but why you don't I do that? Why can't
1: I do that? unplug exactly and so many of us struggle lying in bed at night when i should be
2: doing it i pick up my phone by compulsion and go Same. yeah
1: i have an airpod in one year when i'm falling asleep every single night even though i know that's art terrible for my sleep so we're all works in progress Double. i want to close with thanking you first of all for donating the author proceeds of your book to the lorna breen foundation i, I didn't know about that but Right after this, I'm gonna make a donation on your behalf from my company to the Lorna Breen Foundation and learn more about that
2: foundation and what well, all of us can so do. So generous of you. So generous
1: Thank
2: you. you. Uh, Thank you. And just you know, the least I can do, but again, just a lot. Well uh, this has been such a delight uh, the time a by and i really yeah, would ap- I love to be back on because i'll on of i your point of being Your point of open vulnerable mm-hmm. i know we've talked a little bit know a little bit offline a little bit offline. Being yeah, introduced bit of a little bit I do think there's a lot of power in that, and I think we can change it. And I'm getting emotional just talking about it right now. So thank you I greatly from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot here being here with you and having this conversation. Thank you, Dalval.
1: You were hinting at something that will keep private, but you can imagine that when we first found out about each other and you reached out to me privately, I was in a dark place. I had reached my tipping point where I realized I needed those interventions, medication, therapy. I was dealing with anger. My oldest brother passed away. And he, that was my tipping point. My daughter was born just a few days before that all that. We all reach a tipping point when you need to reach out. And unfortunately, Dr. Breen didn't get that help when she needed it. Yeah but maybe we can save some lives or by she got incursion. the help
2: the best she could, but it was too late. Yeah. and wasn't enough. Yeah, too Right. Late. That's the too way I look at enough. it too. So it's something yeah. that we need to all start earlier and have these conversations.
1: Absolutely. I know that you need yes. to pick up your daughter back to being father. We are all much more than just physicians. Yeah. And I appreciate you being here. We will for sure have you back okay. if you're willing. I would love that. I, great. And, and I wish you, you the best. For...
2: Yeah. And I wish you the thank best you. of the podcast. Thank you for creating this platform and we'll be in touch, Steven. Thanks very much, everyone. Go get a copy of the book and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you.
0: Hey, Steven here. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way you can support a podcast is to share, follow, subscribe, and most importantly, leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast hosting platform. If you're new here, you might not feel ready to leave an honest review yet. That's totally fine. At the very least, keep listening and share it with one person in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks for being here. Your attention means the world to me. I'll see you on the next episode. If you like this and want to subscribe to my newsletter, head over to luellismd.com. That's L-E-W-E-L-L-I-S-M-D as in medicaldoctor.com.